Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing very well. It is, oh my goodness, what is it, March the 6th, 2010, just after 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the regular Sunday show. A couple of intro notes and uh, bitsy bobs. Uh, please think of signing up for the Porcupine Freedom Festival, June 20th to 26th, Rogers Camp Brandon Motel in beautiful Lancaster, New Hampshire. I was uh, there last year. Uh, I did some emceeing and I gave a speech. You can go to freestateproject.org forward slash festival. Uh, it is a truly a beautiful and wonderful place to go. And I will be there. Uh, Christina and Isabella will be there. And we really look forward to, to meeting everyone. Uh, if you're signing up, uh, you can use the promo code STEFAN, all caps, to get yourself a juicy, tasty discount. And um, uh, also I uh, wanted to mention that as of this time last year, there were only a few people signed up for the uh, uh, Porcupine Freedom Festival. So far at the moment this year, we've, have a, we've had over 250 people sign up, and it's only going to go up. It's from here. So uh, please go to freestateproject.org forward slash festival. You owe it to yourself. It's a little slice of Galt's Gulch with fabulous Thai food and a great, great company until the wee hours. So I hope you will look into that. The Liberty Cruise with uh, myself and Wes Bertrand and Mark Edge from Free Talk Live is uh, the first phase is sold out. They're booking more. Uh, you can go to uh, fdrurl.com forward slash cruise uh, to sign up for that. It's a cruise from, uh, I believe it is from New Jersey to, I think the Bahamas or Barbados or something like that. Sorry, I, it just slipped my mind because I'm over 40. Anyway, uh, so I hope that you will uh, check that out. That should be a lot of fun as well. And, of course, I will be emceeing and speaking at the Libertopia Festival, which uh, I also did last year. Uh, you can find that at Libertopia. Dot org highly highly recommended a very very intelligent group of people there and me so anyway i had a letter i'm sorry i haven't had a chance to um to do emails of the week and more podcasts at the moment i am working on a new book uh, there are some excitements about the new website and all of that kind of stuff but um uh, we will get back to it so um hello and i've asked uh, permission the listener has uh, said i can do this but i have to do it in an outrageous greek accent which which I won't. Um, so he says, first of all, I wanted to share a tiger mother experience with you. My wife is Asian, though not Chinese, and an immigrant. Long before I discovered you, we had a child. I convinced her that public schools were inadequate and that it's important for us to teach him ourselves and that we can start before he even starts school. Basically, my wife's methods were like the tiger mother. Uh, this is uh, Amy Chua's thing, which is how she was raised and taught at home as a child. Lots of screaming, no hitting, but some emotional terrorism for sure. Unlike the guy in the tiger mother story, I put my foot down right away and put an end to it. I know that's tough, man. Good for you. Where screaming failed, encouraging worked in spades. Our son was reading books, adding and subtracting before he stepped foot into kindergarten. He's just finishing kindergarten now and already at what Americans would call a third grade level. The only reason he even goes to school is from my wife's concerns about social development, which I haven't found an answer to. I just can't say enough about nonviolence with kids. Amen, brother! Not only is it the ethical way to raise your child, it works. There's literally no loss from what I've seen. Our son was floundering under a system of spanking, shouting, and force. He is now simply just amazing. He's overseas right now visiting family and was messaging me over Yahoo. I know he was doing it by himself because he was on webcam. If left to the state or to the tiger mother, he might be able to read and write his first and last name and maybe play a few keys on piano. Well, that is just fantastic, and I couldn't agree with you more. 
uh, Isabella continues to blow my gourd across the stratosphere this morning. Um, she wanted to play on the bed, and she likes to pretend to sort of go to sleep and cuddle. And uh, so she, she, we went into the bedroom. She said, turn off the light. So I turned off the light. And then she closed all of the doors and the curtains, and she said, I want it to be a little bit darker. 25 and a half months. Bah! <laughs> just amazing. So she is just, um, she is just an absolute, complete, and total delight. And, uh, yeah, so it works. I can absolutely tell you it works. And, um, you know, if you're a parent who's missed the boat or never heard the information or didn't pick up the way that parenting is generally portrayed in the mainstream media, which is very peaceful and very positive, it's never, ever, ever too late to make amends. It's never, ever, ever too late to begin the healing process and to apologize for inflicting harm upon your kids. I hope that people will always take that opportunity to mend fences wherever humanly possible. It is amazing what apologies and restitution and concessions can do in any relationship. So uh, now I, I want to read this last little bit just because um, I finally have been asked about something I actually have some expertise in. You know, I always say, oh, I'm an amateur at this and I'm an amateur at that. And that's all very true. But here I am a professional. So he said, I wanted to say, as someone that is going bald at an early age, <laughs> how do you cope? What was the transition like? I've decided that rather than try and comb over, I'm just going to shave it all. Any input and moral support in this area is vastly appreciated. I beseech thee, O forehead of wisdom. You know, if, uh, if uh, wisdom was the size of your forehead, I would be one of the wiser people uh, in the known universe. So, um, yeah, look, this is <laughs> complete non-philosophical nonsense, but um, uh, let's, let's sort of mention it anyway. If, if, I, uh, if I could get back the time in my life that I've worried about things that don't matter, uh, I really believe that I would live pretty much like Methuselah, uh, probably about a thousand years. Uh, I have wasted a huge amount of time in my life worrying about things that don't matter, uh, uh, fearing for things that never happen, uh, and so it's just something that I have to wrestle with. This is the you know the story of the brutalized childhood that you get uh, elevated fight or flight and uh, sort of de-elevated suppressing mechanisms in the neofrontal cortex. So you just have to deal. Or I have to deal with these eruptions from time to time. Uh, bald, bah, bah, you know, it sucks. I started going bald. I think I was about 16 or 17 when I first noticed that um, my father's hair had fallen, uh, not on me so much as past me. And uh, yeah, of course, I stressed and I worried. And I was like, I tried that little comb thing where you comb over the widow's peak, like that's going <laughs> to fool anyone. And I was, um, I was obsessed with people who had more hair. And why? I remember reading some article in Esquire many years ago, which was something like, well, Warren Beatty, has he cured cancer? Why does he get a great head of hair? And, and, and Winston Churchill, who saved Western civilization, was bald as an egg. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is silly things that you think about. Uh, I, I like it now. Uh, and I don't think like, there was a pill that would get me back my hair. I don't think I would take it now. I really like the speed of, you know, wash and go. And I will say a couple of positive things about going bald because the negative things are just clear. You know, you're worried about your physical attractiveness and there is a sort of grim handprint of mortality on your head because it's not supposed to happen. That's pretty common. I, mean, I think 40% of guys start losing hair before the age of 30 or 40. So the negatives are clear, but let me give you some of the positives. The first is that it's going to weed the really shallow people out of your life, like uh, in terms of dating. Now, you're married, so it's not so bad. But uh, it is going to weed some really shallow people who won't go out with you because you're bald. You don't want to go out with them anyway. Uh, a complete ridiculous approach, but uh, I have a vague theory that something like hair is boobs, right? So uh, there are, uh, in general, uh, I've heard that uh, men uh, tend to like larger boobs on uh, women. And women, I was sure, in general, like that sort of proto-thick thatch of Patrick Dempsey hair uh, rather than, than bald. Now, 
some women who have no boobs uh, are fantastically attractive. Uh, and some women who have, you know, boobs for days, uh, not so much. So it's not a singular criteria. But if, of course, you, uh, you are going bald, in other words, if you have small male boobs, so to speak, then there are things that, that I would suggest you do. First of all, uh, for heaven's sake, don't gain any weight. I mean, don't gain any weight just in general. And I say this as a guy who just recently lost, well, recently, I guess a year or two ago, lost about 25 pounds. So yeah, try not to, to gain any weight because, you know, bald works if you can go with that. I'm a Charlie Brown wisdom head from the future, you know, that, that bobblehead <laughs> from the future. But that only works if you can keep your face somewhat angular, which doesn't work so much if you work into the twinkle dumb uh, face of, of pudginess. So uh, I think, I mean, it's generally good to stay relatively uh, 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 at a good weight, but it's particularly so uh, important when you're we're balding or bald, because I think you can get away with it then. So uh, I would suggest that um, I think bald works well with exercise. Uh, you know, if, so uh, exercise and, and stay fit and maybe a little bit muscular. I think that works really well. Cause then again, you're that unitard jumpsuit guy from the future who's come back to uh, pump up the Western world. So I think that can be, uh, that can be helpful and positive. And uh, other than that, ah, you know, I mean, there are bigger things in life than uh, whether you have a couple of follicles on your head. It does get to be a bit tiring wearing hats in the summer, but you know, it's just something you kind of got to get down with because you don't want to end up with two blue eyes and a tomato. Uh, as your as your look, at least for me. So those are my just uh, sort of brief suggestions. Um, it is one of these things that you you worry and fret about quite a bit when it first starts, and then it peaks, and then you just like that you get on uh, you get on with your life, and you know stay attractive, stay lean, work out a little bit, and I think it's a look that can work for a lot of people. But uh, it's one of these looks that if you're bald, uh, being out of shape and overweight and bald, that's really not a good combination. You know, if you look at Oliver Platt, you know, the guy's a, uh, a teddy bear pudginess of overly intimate sexual charisma, but, uh, you know, big head of hair, he's got a lot of uh, uh, character to his face and so on. But he could work around If he was bald, I think it would be a whole different kind of thing. So those are just my two, two cents worth, probably not even that, about the question uh, or, or approach of, uh, of baldness. I guess my wife who doesn't want me to have hair back, and she would actually, she much prefers me uh, me this way. So anyway, just uh, wanted to mention that. Now let's get on with the shoe and talk to the listeners. Thank you everybody so patiently who has been waiting for uh, for the conversation. And uh, oh, sorry. One last note. Uh, traffic to FDR year over year up 100%. 100%. And I do believe that we're closing in on 30 million downloads and views. That is Amazing, astounding, and positive. Thank you so much to everyone who's supporting. Thank you so much to the technical team who is moving us all over to the new server. Uh, thank you so much to the donators and supporters. Uh, it's been a bit of a light month so far, so if you could uh, dig in a little bit, uh, I would appreciate that. Um, it is a little bit costly to move to this new server. It's got four times the memory. It's got six times the hard drive space. It's got four extra processors just because uh, the old one was uh, trembling uh, just, <laughs> just a little bit. So um, yeah, if you could, uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate, hugely appreciated. Remember, no ads. Uh, I don't take uh, money for any conversations that I have with people. Uh, I don't get speaking fees. Uh, I, it is really something that is funded entirely by the generosity of everybody involved in the conversation. So if, if you can step up and support uh, what it is that we're up to, whether it's uh, time or money or pu publicizing or sharing, uh, that's all hugely, massively, and totally appreciated. And thank you, everybody, so much for the journey that we've been on so far. That having been said, let's get to the listeners, and thank you so much for your patience. Hello, Steph. Hi, go ahead. 
Um, basically, oh, is anyone, everyone hearing that? Yeah, you sound like you're dialing up from 1982, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. My apologies. So I think that was the wrong number. Please go on. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, basically I had this really, really weird dream the other night and, um, yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about it. Um, Not yet. Sorry. <laughs> um, but I think I might. Basically, um, okay, so I'll give you some context. Uh, a few weeks ago I went on a trip for a cleanup and so for some flood damage that had happened in our state. And, um, while we were there, I was just getting involved in some really overgrown gardens, clearing out all this stuff that I would normally never touch just because I'm terrified of spiders and creepy crawlies and all that stuff. And um, uh, so anyway, uh, so the other night I had this dream where um, I basically was in this overgrown garden in between two modern apartments. And... Um, it was really dilapidated. There were lots of um, like rusty things lying around, and people were cleaning things up. But in the middle of it, there was a well, um, which I'd, I'd never seen a well before. And um, while I was looking at the well, suddenly everything changed, and we were inside a giant, giant warehouse um, with a concrete floor. And I was aware that the warehouse was somehow at a dock, um, then, um, the, there were some guys sitting around on some fold. Uh, sorry, chairs. I just, uh, sorry to interrupt. It's just, if yep. I don't have it written down, I, I, I lose a little bit of the shape of oh, the dream. So no, yeah. no problem at all. Let me just, uh, I just want to, I've just been sort of making notes and I want to make sure that I've got, got things correct. So you were in fact, uh, helping with some flood damage. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Very nice. And you then, you saw between two apartment buildings, a sort of overgrown lot. Is that right? That's right. And there was a well in it. That's right. Now, was it like a sort of one of these fairy tale wells with the little thatched roof and the 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 the, the buckets like the and the chain? The and I'm sorry. It was like the one from the movie The Ring. The Ring. Okay. Right. Right. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so just like big stones, old style stones, and in right. circle. Okay. Um, and then, sorry, how did you get to the dock? Um, it, we didn't go there. It just, everything changed. Oh, it changed. It like okay. So then you're at a dock, right? Um, well, inside a giant concrete warehouse, but I was aware somehow that outside was a dock. Right. Um, now the well was still inside the warehouse with the little patch of grass around it, but the rest So the well had, sorry, the well had come from the broken gummy up lot into the warehouse, right? Exactly. Okay. And, um, a couple of guys were inside the warehouse. The cleanup was still going on. There was piles of vegetation, uh, recycling stuff being moved around, things that didn't, it didn't make sense at all. But they were all doing stuff. I was one of the people doing stuff. Um, and there was a guy sitting in a fold-up chair next to the well who was joking with whoever was running this um, cleanup. And um, it was some kind of... Uh, it was some kind of guy who was basically running this cleanup. Um, but I never saw him. All I knew was that he was hovering above the well. And, um, basically, you mean like floating in the air? Well, I was just aware that he was, the, he was there as some presence, but I didn't see him. I, see, I saw the guy on the fold-up chair next to him. I was looking at him. I'm sorry. I, 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 don't, I, sorry I don't understand this. So sure. just, how's the guy floating above the well? Um, or 
put it this way. Um, the guy who was on the fold-up chair was talking with someone, but yeah. I couldn't see – I wasn't looking at whoever he was talking to. All I knew okay. was that that was the location of the well. Okay. Um, when I looked over to the well, um, whatever was there shape-shifted into a little spider, like a really, really little one. Right, okay. And um, the spider then jumped playfully onto the guy sitting down, then back into its levitating spot above the well. It gave him a fright, but then he laughed. Um, mm, okay. It sort of had the character of like a kitten pouncing on someone. And right. I mean, I'm terrified of spiders. Uh, I don't think of them in this sort of playful, funny, cutesy way. But everyone was laughing. It was all good natured. The spider was laughing. Um, and, and were you experiencing fear of the spider at the time? No, I was laughing, but also I was also like, "What the hell is going on?" Like I could see the. Well, humor so you were in it sorry. You but were you were you faking the laughter, or was it something that you were genuinely experiencing? I was genuinely. So that, that sounds accusatory. I don't, like ah, were you faking? I just I'm just trying to understand what your emotional state was in this. Well, I was genuinely um, laughing at the the humor of it, as if, but I was also at the same time thinking that something just doesn't add up here. This doesn't make sense. Um, and at that point, um, the cleanup continued. The spider was moved to, um, to a position on a fold-up chair on an elevated platform in this How was um, the spider moved? warehouse. It just, um, I, I just looked and some time had passed and the spider had been moved onto a chair. Okay. And it was, it was basically like um, everyone was moving stuff, cleaning stuff away um, and preparing because someone was coming to the warehouse and they had to move everything out and they had to move the spider out as well. Um, the spider was kind of like the, the leader that was just sit, sitting there while everyone was doing all this stuff for it. It was also completely, it seemed to be helpless to do anything for itself, but it was there. Um, and then and um, at a later point, um, we were moving more stuff away and then suddenly there was, I became aware that there was an office like a small office uh, as like a separate sort of compound within this giant warehouse right in the middle of it near the, near the well. Um, and whoever was coming uh, had arrived and everyone had cleared away, but the spider was still there. It was inside the office. Um, and those, those some girl inside the office who wasn't supposed to be there uh, from like wh whoever was coming, um, it, w it was never made clear. Sorry, I'm getting a clicking noise. Actually, it sounds like giant mandibles. Quick, turn around! No, just, <laughs> just if you can uh, see if there's any background noise. Okay, so there's a girl in the office. The spider is still there, and the guy or the person who's coming has come, and then what? Um, the spider is trying to get away from the girl because she might pose some hazard to it, and it... Basically, the big danger that everyone's afraid of is that the spider will fall and touch the concrete. And it does. It falls, and it falls through the office floor mm. onto the concrete slab below. Um, and now I'm outside this office, and I can see that underneath the office, it's not touching the ground at all. There's a gap under it. There's no supporting structure for a long way. But then I tell myself, that doesn't make sense. And so then there is a supporting structure right at the very back. Far away. Sorry, so under the office ground, there's no supporting structure, is that right? Yeah, it's like a levitating office cubicle inside oh, okay. an old, okay. old wooden 
but levitating office cubicle, but it is supported by some implausible structure at the back. The spider has, is on the concrete, and now I get the understanding that the spider um, is, at th- is threatened because it has nowhere to run up. It's just a giant concrete surface with nothing to, um, no place for it to go. Right. Um, finally, uh, right towards the end, um, I'm going to rescue the spider. It's found a way up on sm- some little area. And I'm going to pick it up, but at this point, it's a lot bigger. And mm. it looks basically like um, it's all legs, no body, but like really like big claw-like legs. And I'm about to reach for it and uh, rescue it when I think, hang on, how do I know this is a spider and not some just other spider that might bite me? <laughs> and that's when I start to feel proper fear. Um, and at that point, uh, I woke up. But uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. And uh, do you have this? Did you have this fear of spiders as a as a kid? Yeah, since I was around six. Do you remember a time before you were frightened of spiders? Um, no. Um, on, do you remember? The, sorry, do you remember any sorry. specific incident that caused uh, the the fear of spiders? Yeah, um, when I was six, I was at my violin teacher's house, and. Um, I was exploring her garden and there was this grove of bamboo and I remember just walking into it and seeing the ground um, just completely covered with spiders. Now, I don't know if this was, if it actually was, but Were they in my small head spiders? it was. Um, Medium-sized, uh, sort of like a couple of centimeters. And I don't know if it was actually true or if this is just something I created in my head from having seen some of it. But I remember that mental image so clearly in my head. Right, right. And, uh, yeah. And since Are you then, dating at the moment? Of them. Uh, no. But I was, um, I was sleeping over at a guy's place that night. I'm, so, I'm sorry. That sounds like a causal thing. Are you dating? No, but I was sleeping over at a guy's place that night. I don't know what that oh, means. Oh, sorry. I'm gay. Yeah, that, that was, okay, yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was <laughs> going to go there next. I just wanted to – now, were you sort of in a sexual relationship that night or – again, I hate to sort of ask, but I'm just sort of curious. Yes. Okay. So it was like a one-night stand. Uh, yes. I knew the guy from before but uh, not emotionally connected. And how's your mom with your gayness? Sorry, gayness. <laughs> I don't know how – with being gay or whatever. I mean there's no you know, easy way to put it, but – um, she doesn't know, but I think she probably suspects. Right. 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 Now, you know that this is all nonsense, right? This is just ridiculous theories over the internet, but I have some thoughts about sure. it that I think might be of interest to you. Uh, what's your relationship with your mama like? Um, kind of mixed, not so good. Um, she... Um, Wait, are you saying that you're a gay man with a complicated (laughs) relationship to his mother? Yeah. Hang on. Hey, there's a first for everything. Let me just make a note of this. On this day of our Lord. Anyway, sorry, go on. Um, Pretty much, um, yeah, I I basically haven't been able to really get her to – like she'll acknowledge some of the things that happened when I was – or most of the things that happened when I was younger. But then – just say, yeah, but you need to move on with your life. Don't hold on to this. You need to just – it's stopping you from being happy, um, holding on to all this stuff. 
Oh, and so when you bring up stuff from the past, she views it as sort of grudge holding. And if you would just let go of it and forgive and forget and move on, everything would be fine. Kind of, yeah. She, she's she said things like, "Look, if you if you need me to uh, accept this, then fine. But you need to move on from this." And I can kind of see what she's saying there, on her. Like, it, I am. Uh, how can I put it? I have made things bigger than they are in my head, but I feel like they do have some size, and they should be uh, uh, acknowledged. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, my my opinion is that the people who've done us harm have no right to tell us to move on. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are other people yeah. who have the right to tell us to move on, but not the people who've actually harmed us. I've, this is, yeah, uh, thank you for saying that. Okay, so. Um, so I'll tell you why I'm talking about your mom. It's not just some sort of cliched couch stuff, right? The reason I'm talking about your mom is that I think that spiders are moms, in dreams. And I could sort of go into all of the reasons why. Um, I certainly know that for myself, I remember I have, this, I have the same fear of spiders. It's not as bad anymore, uh, but, but it was bad. And of course, when I went to Africa when I was six, there were these spiders that looked like you could throw a saddle on them and ride them up a mountain. They were just horrendous. I mean, the, the size of the bugs, particularly when you're six, the size of the bugs in Africa left quite an impression on my unconscious for quite many years. But... Um, but yeah, I think that I think that it's useful to approach uh, spiders as uh, uh, as uh, the unconscious view of mom. For myself, I remember uh, I was in a garden uh, when I was about four or five. I had just started kindergarten. Uh, I I don't know what had happened. Uh, I, I was living with my aunt for a year. Uh, I don't know where my mom was. Maybe she'd had another breakdown. I I don't know. But um, uh, and uh, in their backyard, I remember going out and seeing. Uh, a bunch of, uh, I think there were thistles, and there was a spider web. You know those really, really fine and dense. They looked like gauze almost, like like um, mm. those really thin curtains. It was a spider web, really tightly bound, and there was a spider writhing and like pumping out sp baby spider after baby spider after baby spider, and they were just sort of flowing out, you know, in this river of eekiness <laughs> to get overly technical. <laughs> And so certainly for me, spiders have had some relationship to – I mean that was my first witnessing of birth uh, was, was seeing a spider. So for me, spiders have always had something to do with moms. Uh, I don't think that I'm alone in that. Uh, if you think of the, um, the metaphors to do with spiders, they're, they're usually tubes. Uh, you've got wells. There's the famous – I think the most popular nursery rhyme in the world is, uh, is um, Itsy Bitsy Spider Went Up the Water Spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. I mean, this is kind of like birth, right? The, the birth canal. and I mean, there, there seems to be this one way of processing uh, siblings, you know, for, for babies. You know, there's spiders coming out of the water spout. There seems to be some sort of birth thing. And here you have a, a well uh, as well, so to speak. And you have this, this spider. And spiders, see, spiders are weird too because they can seem to float. Mm. Right. I mean, so, so sometimes like I've, I've come home sometimes and you just see this spider floating in front of the doorway because it's got a little spider web that it's hanging from that you can't see. So they appear like they can levitate, which is kind of freaky. Right. But well, at least uh, they don't have wings. At least they don't have wings. That's right. At least yeah. they don't have wings. Uh, but but that also makes them a bit nastier. Right. In a way, because things that fly around really are going to land on you. But spiders crawling over. That's, you know. <laughs> 
you know, I remember reading this just ghastly tale about how this isn't spiders, but cockroaches. The people in New York would have cockroaches call, crawl into their ears, and then the antennae would wave over the eardrums and cause this absolutely brain-splitting noise. So they have to go to the doctor oh and stagger along the street like their heads are exploding and just ugh, imagine. Anyway, uh, you know, we, I think we've we've all had those sort of um, and and spiders. You know, they have this. Uh, uh, this they, they 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 lay their eggs in things that, that you know like come out of like coming out of John Hurt's chest in Alien you know they they just have this uh, and and there's you know of course there's damn good reasons to be nervous around spiders because they can bite and some of them can kill and uh, they are uh, they are dangerous right I mean what are people scared of snakes heights and spiders well that you know very few people are scared of a a tightly knit cumulus cloud because they can't really do anything uh, harmful. So I was interested that everybody was comfortable with the spider except the woman was a threat to the spider. Is that right? Yeah. So the guys were all pretty comfortable with the spider uh, and were joking about it, although you were, I think, faking a little bit of that because you weren't able to talk about your concern. But the woman was perceived to be a threat to the spider, right? Almost because she might um, freak out at the fact that there was a spider there rather than and when when it was not going to uh, hurt her that's pretty much the the thought i had oh so uh, it wasn't that there was it was just that you thought that the, the the woman might do that sort of eager mouse thing with the spider right exactly that was it right right okay um i th- i think that the interesting thing is that the, the, there's so much in the dream that is suspended with no rationality right the spider is suspended uh, in midair and then the office itself is suspended in midair with no particular, uh, with no particular um, architectural reasoning behind it, no engineering behind it, right? Yeah. So I think that's that's interesting. Is your mom tall? Uh, no, she's a bit shorter than me. Is your mom thin? Um, her weight's fluctuated. She's, I'd say she's thin, but uh, uh, not average. She's average. Right. Because when when you said that the spider turned into a spider that was all legs and no body, mm. where my mind jumps to, and again, this is just, you know, we're just playing around with the imagery. Go ahead. Um, I think yeah, your mind may have jumped there too. <laughs> my mom has, um, like, her, her body is quite slim, but her legs are sort of chunky. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, when you are a, a, a little kid mm-hmm. and uh, you're looking up at your mom, she is all legs and no body because all you can see is like shins and knees and hips and maybe, I don't know, little boobs or something because they're sticking out. Who knows, right? But, mm. but when, you, when you look up uh, as, a, as a little kid, particularly before you can walk, but even when you can walk, I mean, I'm really conscious of this. I mean, Isabella is actually quite tall for her age, but I'm very conscious that I don't want her to spend her whole life looking up because I think that's not actually healthy. Uh, I think that gives you a sense of being small. So I, I always, when I remember, and I don't always remember, but I always try and either lift it to my level or go down to her level so that we can have even eye contact. Mm. So anyway, that just sort of popped into my mind that uh, that uh, this all legs and no body. Uh, it seems to me, I mean, if there is anything to this maternal thing, that that you might be sort of this is an image of sort of looking up, and that there is a sense of uh, of, of danger. The, the, the suspended in midair thing is uh, is interesting because it does remind me of the homosexuality, right? Okay, so what that I haven't said anything about it to her, right? 
Okay. Well, I mean, like, I don't. I'm obviously who, who the hell am I to tell you whether you should or shouldn't? I'm a nobody, right? But uh, it is something which is that there is a very important non-truth avoidance, right? Mm. So things are kind of hanging, right? Yeah, I can see that. Um, like, it, it, I, I haven't actually been thinking about this aspect of things for a while, but I had been thinking recently about just what I'm going to say to my mom. Um, on a number of yeah, in a number of areas, um, I, I mean, I don't know if this is relevant, but um, yeah, around a week ago, actually no, it was a few weeks ago. I did um, the landmark form. Um, I think oh, you posted about that, that on right? the board, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, I did that too. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, did you? Uh, what was your experience of that? I I thought some of it was great. Uh, and I really admired the passion, if not the downright endurance, of the of the speakers, uh, of the speaker, of the woman who was uh, who was leading it. Uh, I I thought uh, I, I think it's worth uh, I think it's worth looking into for people. I, I found it to be quite useful in some ways. I think that uh, you know I have a pretty philosophical mind, and uh, I got into um, some pretty uh, good I thought good debates. With the um, with the leader, and people were very interested in the debates. Uh, and uh, but the leader kept shutting it down, saying that I was running running a racket called being smart. <laughs> and uh, I I <laughs> I don't think that that was true. Uh, I mean, I genuinely am passionate about philosophical truth, and uh, I do reserve the right to question my teachers, just as of course everybody should question uh, everyone if questions are arising. So. Um, so I did, uh, yeah, I did, I did two, two rounds, um, and uh, I found it uh, useful, uh, and I found it interesting, and I found it challenging, and uh, I didn't have any particular desire to continue uh, after that, but uh, sure. it, certainly, uh, uh, is, uh, it certainly is a, uh, an interesting experience, and very much, uh, very different for, and now the other thing that I thought was interesting as well is that it is fascinating to see what lies beneath the surface of uh, of people's lives right because you know you you, you, you oh, come yeah. into the room and there's like all these people and they're milling around and you you know in any other social situation you'd get to know almost nothing about them but uh, in this environment uh, you do see a lot of um, what goes on behind the scenes for people you know behind the social masks underneath the calm exteriors and that was uh, was very interesting so i just wanted to sort of mention that but go ahead well uh, yeah basically um uh, I mean, I, I got us. I had this experience at the end of it where I finally, um, I, I realized that I see the world through an intellectual filter that isn't. Um, it, it really doesn't feel very nice. It's just interesting, it's not warm or genuinely um, connected with people. Like I can only connect with people if I think that they're right, <laughs> um, and. <laughs> If, if I can't, like, I can't just have a simple, or it's rare for me to have a simple discussion where I'm just like happy and in the moment. Um, and at the end of the, at the end of my experience there, basically I had this thing where I let go of, I don't know how I did it. It just happened where I felt a, three waves of just releasing something really heavy. Um, one was, um, false interpretations I had about myself in terms of like 
um, negative self-image things. I, I saw it on, from a way that wasn't intellectual for the first time, that it was like it had gone around that defense and shown me that uh, a lot of stuff I had been holding on to about myself wasn't based on empirical evidence. It was just um, me interpreting a few facts and stringing the rest together myself. Um, things, that, But, um, I mean, a few months ago we spoke about um, self, self-worth and how I was like, what do I have to do to earn or rebuild my self-worth? And you said it's just a weight that you have to take off it. Um, I didn't, I, I could hear what you're saying, but I didn't really get what you meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I felt, I, I let it go, but um, I mean, I don't know how I did it. Uh, I don't know how, what will stop it. It's, I felt it coming back again and again. But at the end of that, I felt so free for the first time. Like I just broke down in tears and I was happy. And um, I felt like um, it was whatever was wrapped around me for all these years was gone. And I could just act and not worry, not care at all what anyone thought or anything like that. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And uh, I certainly can understand that experience from the forum. And again, I'm I'm no expert on Landmark. Uh, I would only – for me, uh, I got much more out of one-on-one therapy uh, yeah. over the long run. Yeah. I mean that's you know that's sort of my, my recommendation based on – I mean some – some empirical evidence, some scientific evidence, but um, uh, I felt that there was a certain euphoria and release that came out of the forum. Uh, I did not find that I was able to uh, to maintain it, uh, but I was okay. able to through therapy. Now, again, that may be my uh, my experience; it may be completely different for you. That was just sort of my uh, my uh, my approach. Uh, I I felt that uh, to be sort of uncorked from inhibition without more coaching, one-on-one coaching, uh, actually led me to make some decisions that in hindsight would probably a tad pre- premature. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm free, I can fly. Ah! So I just sure. wanted to mention that that was sort of my, I, I am, uh, I guess, somewhat known for my enthusiasms. So uh, so I felt that um, the sort of more, more patient one-on-one coaching that went on through therapy to me was a little less giddy and euphoric and more sustainable. But again, that's just that was just my my particular experience. Anyway, I, look, I, 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 we could go more more into the dream, but uh, I I would suggest that um, uh, that um, that it may have something to do with the elephant in the room with your mom. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, I I I recently had a conversation with her that was basically me telling her some of the things that. Um, Although I recognized that there were some things, a lot of what was going on in my relationship with her was me holding a grudge um, for the fact that, uh, basically for the fact that I wasn't popular at school, for the fact that my social skills hadn't, weren't, uh, I hadn't been taught them enough to really, um, yeah, so I had been holding this grudge and building on it and building on it and building on it. Um, and... I remember so clearly a couple of times making a conscious decision to stubbornly hold on to it, like because I felt like it would be treason to something to not. And it just sucked holding on to that. And I, I, I feel like I'm holding on to it now, which is why the other day when I was speaking to my mom about it, it was completely intellectual. Like I, I could not, I was not connecting at all in that sense. 
Well, I'll tell you again, I want to move on yeah. to other callers, and I'm sorry oh, to, sure. to interrupt sorry. you, but, yep. uh, but I just wanted to mention something that I think is important uh, around the question of grudge. Uh, grudge is a, is a difficult word. There are words that are just so innately ad hominy, like they're just so innately insulting in a sense that I'm always suspicious of them. Uh, and that doesn't mean you – know, so if you say to somebody, you're holding a grudge – then what you're saying is that the other person is being unjust, that the other person is refusing to forgive legitimately, mm. that a restitution has been made or reasonable accommodations have been made, mm. that the provocation is something that should be forgiven because I think that's fair to say that there are some provocations that uh, we should not encourage other people to to forgive, you know, like a wife getting beaten up by her husband shouldn't go back and forgive and not hold grudges, right? I mean, that should be something that should be damn well processed, right? Mm. So the, the, I have a problem with, with language that claims a vast amount of moral wisdom, philosophical knowledge, psychological insight without demonstration of that, right? So for instance, like if... I think that somebody is – if I thought you were holding a grudge mm. and, and I thought it was useful for us to have a conversation about you holding a grudge, the last thing that I would say is you're holding a grudge because for, <laughs> for, me, no, for me to say that is giving you the entire conclusion. Sure. Without, but the important thing is that you – like, first of all, I have to know that I'm right, which means I need to have very deep knowledge about the provocation and the interactions and the responses and, and how the relationship has gone and all that kind of stuff, right? So I have to have a deep knowledge. If I'm going to label something a grudge, I need to have really deep knowledge about what has been going on in the relationship and what, what, you know, what was the provocation, what was the response, and what, what have the conversations been. And so to me, grudge is a conclusion or in a sense a judgment that the person holding the grudge needs to come to. And they really can't be told that because if they're told that, then like without going through the reasoning, then it's just kind of insulting and diminishing to the person. Mm. Does that sort of make any sense? Yeah, it's saying um, like it's just a shortcut without actually having gone through the steps. Right, right. So uh, and, and the reason that most people do shortcuts Right. When, whenever somebody has a moral stand in a relationship, it makes people acutely uncomfortable. Not everyone, but most people, in my experience, become acutely uncomfortable when you take a, a moral stand in a relationship. Because most people are trained to get along, to go along, to appease, to you know, turn the other cheek, to whatever. Uh, if your enemy asks you to walk a mile with him, walk two. You know, there's that whole thing. And so. When someone takes a stand and says, no, I don't accept insults in a relationship. Uh, I don't accept a lack of love, a lack of respect in a relationship. I don't, ex I don't, I don't accept a lack of trust in a relationship. I don't, I don't accept a lack of open-mindedness and curiosity in a relationship. I don't accept a lack of communication. I don't accept significant lies. I don't accept emotional avoidance. I don't accept put-downs. I don't accept trivia, boring, empty sports team and weather trivia in my relationships, or at least not <laughs> anywhere near the center. 
of my relationship. So when anybody in this world, I believe, genuinely believe, puts up a standard to do with personal relationships, it makes other people acutely uncomfortable. And in my experience, what people do with that discomfort is they attempt to reframe it as moral superiority. That's what people do when they're emotionally uncomfortable, is they attempt to reframe their emotional discomfort as moral superiority. So, so you if, made me feel sorry, this. Okay. So it's like you made me feel this because you did something to me rather than um, just, oh, I'm, maybe I feel this because I'm wrong. Um, sorry, I don't follow what you're saying. Oh, people who, when they feel uncomfortable because it's something that they've done, they'll just say, oh, no, you're making me feel this because you are manipulating me or something. Um, I, would, uh, I would be a little bit more precise, right? So I think the interaction would be something like this. So, uh, so you uh, take a moral stand which says, I've got some stuff to clean up with my past with my mom. Mm -hmm. And uh, it needs to be – I need to be listened to. Uh, and obviously, nobody has to accept as gospel everything that I say, but I really feel that I need to be listened to and not dismissed and, and that I need to know that the other person gets what I feel. You see, getting what someone else feels doesn't mean that you agree with them. It just means that you really understand and there's a huge amount of sweet relief in relationships when you feel visible. And people mistake feeling visible for being agreed with. Like, uh, oh, if I empathize, I have to agree. No, you can empathize and disagree. But there's a huge, sweet, beautiful relief when somebody gets where you're coming from. And you can actually have a conversation without defensiveness, without manipulation, without avoidance, without people jockeying for the moral superior position. And so if you say, look, I've got, these, I've got some standards in it. I'm going to have honesty in my relationships. Now, if I have relationships that are not honest, I'm going to feel anxious about that because I'm going to feel not only is your commitment to honesty in relationships going to have an effect on your relationships and therefore unconsciously on my own relationships with people, but it's also going to have an effect on your relationship with me. In other words, if you're going to start really demanding honesty – not demanding sounds tough, but you know what I mean. If you're going to raise the standard of, of honesty in our relationship, then that may threaten some of my other relationships where I feel, or and maybe with, with good reason, that honesty is not possible or honesty will be attacked or honesty will be rejected or honesty will be scorned. You know, I think, I think that most people are just kind of, uh, I should say, I think a lot of people are just kind of crawling through life with a big, giant medieval shield on their backs, just trying to get to the grave without being speared, <laughs> you know, without being bored, without having some hail of arrows fall down on their naked ass or something, right? Because to be honest is, is, is to run into a lot of problems in this world sometimes, right? right. So yeah. I think that people, when you, when you raise your standards in your relationships, people feel that that is threatening. People feel that that is destabilizing. People feel that as anxiety-provoking. And whenever people feel that they're put down by something that you're doing, even though what you're doing is not trying to put them down, then what they do is they feel pushed down. It's like a helium balloon. You push it down into the water and it gets a whole load of potential energy, right? And then it shoots up out of the water and it doesn't just go to the top of the water. It shoots up into the air. And up into the air is where people need to go to when they feel put down. And up into the air is moral superiority, so if you say, I'm going to talk to my mom about X, Y, and Z that I have a problem with her about, everybody has problems with their parents. Everybody has problems with their spouses. Everybody has problems with their friends. I think that's natural. Uh, I think it would be kind of weird if they didn't. I have problems with things I did four days ago. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have problems with things uh, I'm doing six months from now. Uh, I think that's part of the natural 
growth and, and, you know, we're all sort of feeling our way to some sort of more rational and more honest and more open kind of communication, kind of relationship. And there's lots of stumbles and falls along the way. Every athlete has problems with the way he performed two months ago, maybe even yesterday, and will have problems with how he performs, you know, with maybe one exception or two exceptions in his whole career. And that just sort of popped into my mind. Marlon Brando, one of the greatest acting performances in film is on the waterfront. And uh, when he watched the film for which he got an Oscar, he just turned to Ilya Kazan, who was the director. And he said, Jesus, I can't believe how big my ass looks. <laughs> that was his response to one of the most beautiful acting jobs that have ever been done on, on motion pictures. One of the most incredible, uh, sensitive, and, uh, and uh, embodied and beautiful acting performances. My ass, it's so huge. I can't believe it. So, um, yeah, so, so when you say, look, I'm, I'm raising the standards of my relationship, other people feel anxious and they feel uh, that they're being devalued, that they're being put down uh, implicitly. And so what they do is they then respond with, well, it's important not to hold grudges. It's important to forgive. So they start to lecture you from a position of moral superiority, not empathy, not curiosity, not openness, not asking questions, but immediately react or recoil to sniping at you from the high ivory tower suspended yeah. in midair, suspended in midair, like the spider, like the office, right, from the well. Right, So they went down in the well and then they go boom up into the sky to moral superiority. And uh, then they're looking down at you from a great height of, of moral superiority where you shouldn't hold grudges. And when people are looking down at you from a great height, my friend, what do they look like? They look like all legs and nobody. And I'm doing all the work. Well, then well, you have to justify yourself, right? You have to then justify yourself. No, I'm not holding a grudge and blah, 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 right? Yeah. So, anyway, I just wanted to, uh, to mention that. Thanks for that, Steph. You're very welcome. And uh, I hope that you can at some point have this convo with your mom, but it may be worth Again, I don't know if you're in therapy or not, but my usual blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Thanks, good. Steph. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, bye. All right. Great call, great question. Challenging dream. Hope we got something useful out of it for people. And uh, next Oh, Economics Junkie, we should totally have a, um, a uh, conference call, maybe with uh, Mr. AC from the boards. I think that was mentioned, and uh, we, should, uh, we should think about it. I've always really enjoyed your, your posts and uh, conversation. So, uh, I think we had somebody else, James. Hello? Hello. 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 Hi, how's it going? Pretty good, Steph. How are you doing today? I'm just great, thank you. Okay, um, first time caller, and I just wanted to bring up about a few points that I kind of feel are contrary to what you put out in some of your work. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just list off six, and feel free to grab onto one or all, and maybe we can um, discuss. Let, let's bit. do them one at a time, uh, if that's all right. Uh, one, one at a time. Okay, how about um, prop, private property is a myth? Private property is a myth? A myth, yes. Uh, I don't believe that private property is a myth. Okay. Have you pulled a registration on your title for the property that you own in Mississauga? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, have you ever pulled a registration, the title on your property that you own in Mississauga? I'm assuming, okay, I'm making an assumption that you actually own property in Mississauga. Are you a renter? Well, I'd rather not talk about my particular financial situation, if that's all right, but I'm certainly happy to talk about it. Oh, no, I'm not asking for any 
details. I'm just saying, are, are you a property owner or are you a renter? That's a pretty benign question. Well, um, t- tell me what it is that you mean about in terms of pro- pulling registration. I mean, I, I, I accept that I don't actually own any property uh, in, uh, uh, in a statist system. Uh, that there's no actual property rights that I have. What happens is that I get title to rent property from the government. Even if I end up, quote, owning it, I still have to pay rental in the forms of property taxes and other forms of taxes from, uh, from the government. Okay, I don't... so you recognize that there is no private property and that it is a myth. And for someone to say that private ownership is a viable solution to our, our problems. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, I accept that there is no absolute right to private property in a status system, uh, and uh, I, I completely accept that. I think that's incontrovertible because the government can initiate force at women at will on anybody who holds a property right. Uh, and, I mean, it can do this just in terms of property taxes, which is more universal. But there's also, you know, really crazy search and seizures and eminent domain things, particularly in the United States, that allow the government to seize your property pretty much at will uh, based upon its desire to get higher taxes from other richer people. Well, it's not really your property. If you're saying that the, the government is seizing your property, then you're accepting that you actually do own it. If they're taking it by eminent domain, it's not because that you own it and they're taking it from you. It's that they're seeking claim to the property that they have. They're removing your care and control of the property. It's all that they're really doing by a process of law. Yeah, it's, it's like a repossession, I would say, yeah. Okay, so... About um, how about tax is not theft, but rather payment for benefits provided? Well, I certainly agree with some of that. Uh, so people think that um, – I, I guess people sometimes think it's like, oh, you know, if I didn't pay my taxes or, or if there was no – sorry, I mean I, I always recommend people do pay their taxes. But if, uh, if I didn't have to pay all this taxes, I'd have twice my income. Well, of course, that's not true uh, because there would be a necessity for – uh, services to be provided, a garbage collection, uh, road maintenance, uh, snow removal up here in the frozen armpit of the north. Uh, so yeah, for sure, there are pro- uh, services that are provided uh, through the government that you would have to pay for in the free market. But that, to me, doesn't have anything to do with anything. So for instance, uh, if I were um, a slave-owning southerner in the 18, early 1800s in the United States, uh, I would probably provide housing for my slaves. Uh, Would it be then fair for me to say that they owed me their labor in return for the housing? No, because they're not free to choose. And where there's no freedom of choice, then there can't be considered a binding contract. So it certainly is true. Look, the government does stuff that I like. The government does stuff that is useful. The government does stuff that is good, right? I mean, uh, when I I cut uh, my thumb, uh, I went and got some stitches at, uh, at the hospital. And I'm glad that I got stitches at the hospital. And if I, uh, if I didn't live in socialized medical, uh, a socialized medical system, then I would either have insurance uh, or I would pay for it out of pocket. So that would be uh, – so I was glad to have that. Uh, but uh, still, uh, the initiation of force does not mean that there's a, a binding contract. So just because you do get stuff in return for uh, your taxes initi- doesn't mean – I'm so glad you got to that. And finally, I was waiting for you to use the initiation of force. There sure. is actually a binding contract – and you have actually created one with your daughter. And one was created for you and one was created for your wife. And it has the signature of the guardian on that document. And that contract is known as the birth registration. Do you know what a registration is? I, I've, I've heard, I think I, I remember seeing a YouTube 
a video about, but I didn't really I must say that I was doing something else at the time and I didn't quite follow it. But uh, please tell me, tell me what it is. Okay, well, let's start. Let's get away from registration first because there's about five different definitions for registration. And the fifth one, which I believe is the most accurate, is one that I'll get to later. But I'd like to start with what is known as the registrant, one who registers, one who registers something for the purpose of securing a right or privilege granted by law upon registration. So once you have registered something, you have asked for a right or a privilege, so everything was done by your consent. So your illusion that we are some kind of slave that have to pay taxes is not true in that you have actually consented to this by the birth registration. Good heavens, what nonsense. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, I hate to be so blunt, but that's, that's not how it works here at all. It's absolutely how it works. Absolutely not. Absolutely not how it works, and I'll tell you why. Um, I registered my daughter because without a no, oh, that's not true, Steph. You didn't register her. Your name's not on the document. You didn't do it. The mother registered the document. Your okay, name. Okay. Okay. So fine. Okay. My daughter document. was my daughter was registered, but my daughter was registered because without registration, uh, for instance, she can't get health care. She can't go to school. Didn't get the benefits. Sorry. You couldn't get the benefits. Right, and I can't get them any other way. Right, I I can't say look. I don't want to be part of the social. Look, I can't. Sorry, let me finish. I can't say look. I don't want to be part of the socialized medical system. I want to go into the free market in terms of the medical system. I don't have that choice. You can't legally purchase healthcare in Canada outside the socialist system. So I can't. Get health care for my daughter if I don't get the paperwork. I'm sorry? It was provided for you on your behalf by your mother's signature on your registration shortly after you were born. And there's another signature on that document, not your father's, but it would be a witness that could attest to the state of your mother when she signed that document in that she wasn't coerced. She did it of her own free will. Free will. I don't think that you're processing what I'm saying. Because In fact, I'm quite sure that you're not. I'm stating a fact. Your doc, your name is not okay. Your name is on your daughter's birth registration, but your signature is not. Why is that? I still think that you're not processing what I'm what I'm saying. There's no way for me to get health care or well, education okay, from that. without that. Right? You're not on your daughter's birth registration. Do you have a, a reasonable answer for that? I'm sorry. Can you say again? Because it's not required. Why is your signature not on your daughter's birth registration? I, I got to tell you, as far as pressing moral issues in my life, I, I just can't see why that one's important. But if you want to make the case, I'm certainly happy to hear. Leave the moral argument aside because that's your sort of cross to bear. I'm really just talking about what is and what isn't. Okay? What isn't is your signature on your daughter's registration, and it isn't there because it's not required. All right. Okay. What is required is the mother's signature and a signature of a witness that attests to the fact that she did so willingly and without coercion. That's where the contract exists. The fact that when your daughter gets to be 18 or 19 or 20, that contract is still in effect. It was done for her because your daughter can't sign as a minor. It has to be done by the guardian. And that is why this contract is in existence for everyone so you have an obligation to pay taxes, and if you don't pay taxes, you are actually the thief 
because you're, this is the part you always leave out about your men with guns argument, is that due process is always afforded to those before the men with the guns come. So you have oh, your fantastic. Right. So, so, okay, so this is a universal a human right because we can't say that only some people have the right to create these contracts, right? So then I have the right to go to my neighbors and say, you can't get health care for your children unless you pay me $10,000 a year. No, so no, then everybody, everybody has the right to impose this contract on everyone else, right? Not imposed on anyone. It was signed by their own free will. It wasn't imposed on anyone. They offered. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to move on to another caller because uh, saying it's. I've made the argument several different ways that uh, it is not uh, a, a free choice because you can't get access to essential life necessary services uh, without signing for it. So it's like if I throw someone in my basement and refuse to feed them until they sign a contract, nobody would accept well, that that contract from the is valid. Government. If you don't sign the contract, you're not, you're not up. You can still get life saving services from another source. You're just limiting yourself to the fact no, that. No, uh, sorry, I, I can't. Uh, I, I can't. It is actually illegal to privately pay a doctor here in Canada for services rendered. So uh, I'm sorry, but I can't. Well, you could go outside the country, so you're not restricted. Oh, come on, man. Come on. Okay, we got to get to the next caller. That's ridiculous. I can leave the country if I need to go get some antibiotics, and that's not the same as, as any kind of compulsion or coercion. Okay. Sorry. Um, sorry. I just I can't take that too seriously. I appreciate the feedback, and I certainly find the argument about contracts sort of interesting, but the idea that I, I have to leave the country every time I need to see a doctor, and that's somehow a good and voluntary situation. I'm sorry. I just uh, I just can't go with it. But thank you so much for your call. Let's Let's move on to the next one. Yeah, this is Mark. Is it my is it my turn? Yeah. Hi, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing terrific. <laughs> I would just like to talk about a, a couple things, and I've been doing a lot of reading on the board, and just kind of just to say a little bit of where I came from and how I've come to free thinking. I'm just kind of um, short, uh, typical mixed bag family, a lot of abuse things like that, Catholicism, to drugs, to Alcoholics Anonymous, to uh, Evangelical Christianity, to, you know, fundamentalism, uh, to libertarianism, and now here. <clears throat> and the, you are a traveler on the intellectual road, my friend. That's, that's very interesting. Absolutely. We are fellow travelers. And, I can, and the thing that, that has always driven me, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with Myers-Briggs. Yes. Yes, and it tells me that my particular, and I forget what the letters are, it's been so long, but this is the main thing that motivates me, according to at least at the time I took the test, would be uh, freedom. So it was always others' hypocrisy. And, and as I moved along that traveling, um, it was always towards freedom and towards a, you know, uh, you know, you know again, the Bible is, is a mixed bag, as is religion, and there's just a lot of, anyways, we, all, we can talk about that all day, but it was always a progression from, one place to another towards freedom from from a lesser, well, maybe towards a better truth. I'm, I would guess I would express it that way. But uh, one thing I do observe, and you know, it always appealed to me is you know, similar. And the thing is, I kind of relate to you that uh, I, is that was really driven is wanting to do base. Uh, I'm, I'm driven by morality. I would I would have to say, um, and um, and I've. I've I've read all kinds of stuff. I've read, you know, I've read your critics' websites. I've read all this stuff, and the people that reject you have a tendency to either be parents that that have been defooed because they don't want. They're looking down on everyone else, and they, of course, they don't want to do anything to help themselves. 
you know, all the criticism of the food. And my experience with my own family is that the more, the more, you know, we live a thousand miles away from them, but the, the contact has proved over and over again that family, they're proving to me without me having to do anything, that family in itself without um, ethics and morality is not virtuous. I see it over and over again. But um, getting back to religion and Christianity, I'm going kind of fast. Um, I think I've got some input on how that might be able to use the actual things, you know, um, from the Bible, some principles that might actually open somebody up to at least listen, to pay attention. Um, coming from that perspective, um, I think a lot of Christian people, they have a certain element of fear, but there's some principles within the Bible itself, I think. Now, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to believe it to, to uh, put, uh, put people at ease, but the point is that they do. And there's simple things in the Bible, you know, where God says, you know, come, let us reason together. Uh, another truth that anyone's going to agree with is, you know, the, you know, the truth will make you free. Uh, another thing about faith, you know, like you know, some people, you know, have discussions with Christians. Uh, they often think that, you know, I've lost faith. Well, you know, and I just point out there's another verse in the Bible that talks about the amount of faith it takes to move a mountain is actually under the size of a, of, a, of a mustard seed, which is about the size of a speck of dust. So when a person thinks about those things, then they're free to reason. You don't necessarily have to talk them in or out of believing anything, but if they can come to, come to grasp with some of those principles in those things that I just stated, uh, maybe they come to reason. And that's why I came to ultimately. But um, I just kept on sh- getting shocked by authority figures that were abusing power over and over again. And that's how I moved in each, you know, uh, along each stage in my, in my progression and in my journey. Right, right. No, I think you've, you've brought up a lot of interesting points. I, I sympathize and respect in many ways religion's focus on morality. Uh, I, I think morality, I mean, as a moral philosopher, that's, that's my scene, that's my bag, that's my brain rave, baby. So I hugely respect the focus on, on virtue. The problem, of course, from a philosophical standpoint, is that mixing magic into commandments does not make them philosophical. Right, so if I say, well, "Thou shalt not kill," well, that's a rousing statement to make. Uh, and so you say, "Well, why should people believe that?" Well, philosophy, or at least the way that I've approached it, says, "Okay, well, you've got to work really rigorously from first principles, using evidence and as much logic as you can stuff into a syllable every step of the way, and then you can come up with a compelling argument that can't be refuted or rejected." And that's how I think that commandments should be elevated to truth, to universally preferable behavior, as I call it. Now, the problem with religion is it takes this shortcut. You know, it's like, I want to be happy. I'll take some heroin. No, yes, it will work in the short run, but uh, in the long run, not so good. So the problem is you've got a commandment, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. And those uh, commandments how, why do we believe them? Well, if you don't take the road of philosophy, which Lord knows is a, is a hell of a road, then what you have to say is, okay, well, how am I going to elevate these commandments to universals? And what people do is they reach up into the sky with a big scoop of faith, like an ice cream scoop of faith, and they scoop out of the clouds a magic ball called God, and then they spread it <laughs> all over these commandments, like sprinkling this pixie dust. Uh, on something to bring it to life. And they sprinkle God on commandments. They sprinkle superstition and magic onto moral commandments to make them into universals. And that is really tempting. 
but it's not uh, it's it's very dangerous it's very it's like a ring of power <laughs> lord of the rings right because everyone can then do that right right and if everyone can take their own commandments uh, or particular aspects of biblical commandments and can then, because the magic god dust has been sprinkled on them, which brings them to life and turns them into these big phoenix-like universals, everyone can do that, which means that you get uh, warring, superstitious-based absolutes that can't really compel anyone except those who already believe in it. And I do genuinely believe that morality's greatest challenge is to find ways to, uh, I should say, I should say, to cause people to accept morality even if they don't want to, to cause people to accept universals even if they don't want to. And the magic pixie dust, the sort of magic icing on the cake called commandments that turns them into universal absolutes, doesn't work because everyone can do it and you end up with these huge contradictions and problems. So I hugely respect the drive and desire of anyone, whether they're religious or secular, the drive and desire of anyone to try and find a way to turn commandments into universal morality. But the shortcut of the ice cream scoop of God's brain, spread it all over into the Sunday. See, Sunday, it's Sunday, and you go to church on Sunday. See how this metaphor works so beautifully? Into the yes. Sunday of, of morality, I just think that is um, a dangerous shortcut that causes more problems in the long run than it solves. Absolutely. And uh, I'd just like to add, this, is, this was about a, about a year ago. We were go- they were going through it. This is, I haven't been going to church too much lately. It's just, I haven't real... I can't really do it. So, but um, we were having discussion groups. Needed a series of different heroes in the Bible, and some of them were about people who did some heroic things. And then we came to the last one, and um, with Samson. At the time, I had been, and through you know history of abuse, I'd been doing a lot of reading on personality disorders and sociopathy. Now, I can't really, you know, I I can't really uh, always define what personality disorder somebody has, but like a lot of times, man, I I, I know when I see them, you know, and. So I was stepping out, I was just reading the story, and they're talking about all this kind of great stuff. I thought, this isn't a description of a hero. This is a, a description of a maniac, you know, a mass murderer. And there's like, really, there's no hero, excuse me, no hero in the story, except for maybe God. Cause, but even that doesn't even make any sense, really, the more, the more you think about it. But, but nobody in that, in, you know, in it blew everybody's mind. This guy said, yeah, this, is, this guy's not a hero. He's a sociopath. He's a mass murderer. And... Um, anyway, that's where the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing comes apart. You know, it's a, it's a, the Bible's a mixed bag and, uh, of, of all kinds of stuff for those kinds of reasons. And, you know, people who are religious want to believe that they've got a universal set of morality that everyone should follow, but it, it doesn't apply universally within, the, within all the stories in the same book that they're getting them from. So, anyways, I'm with you, man, and I just want to... Um, this is great stuff. It's really liberating, and um, I'm really enjoying it. So I don't know if there's. Well, oh, thank you so much. Oh, my... I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to mention too a little bit about. I've been sort of mulling over this this uh, Defu question or this Defu issue that um, occasionally pops up. Uh, I mean, it's been a pretty small part of the show uh, as a whole. I think it's mm-hmm. in like less than one percent of the podcast. But obviously, it's uh, it's a volatile and challenging issue. And I was sort of thinking to myself, okay, well, when I was a kid. Uh, I'm sorry, if you could just mute. I'm just getting a bit of a background history. Oh, sure. So when I was a kid, uh, I was always told, and, and it was a very common refrain, you know, that, that family is everything and, and um, you know, respect your elders and, and, you know, blood is, is thicker than water and so on. 
And I've always been, I don't know, blessed, cursed, whatever you can say. I've always been, I've always had this, this unconscious drive for empiricism. In other words, I can listen to all of the words in the world, but there's a part of my brain, and I sometimes thought, you know, uh, when, when I'm dead, I think they've got uh, Einstein's brain sliced up in a Petri dish somewhere, and they found that his mathematical center was like three times the normal, right? And uh, I've often sort of wondered, you know, what, what part of my brain, and this is probably true for just about anyone who's philosophical or, or strives for this kind of consistency, uh, what part of our brains are different from people who find it more easy to accept, general social cliches and bromides and so on, or, or, or religion. But when I was a kid, everybody said, you know, well, family is everything and this and that. But, but when I looked around, when I looked around in the place that I lived, where I lived, it, it wasn't true. Do you know, most of my friends didn't have dads. And not only did they not have dads like their parents had divorced, but they didn't have dads like they barely, if ever, saw them. Um, one, one of my friends, um, his dad left when he was two or so. And I think he saw him once after that, though they lived in the same city, lived in the same city. Another one of my friends, uh, his dad had just gone and, and nobody knew where he was and so on. And of course, my dad left and went to uh, to Africa. And, you know, to, to his credit, I mean, we did, uh, he did try and keep up to some degree. I would see him sort of once a year uh, for a while when I was in England. And then I, I saw him once or twice more, maybe three times more after uh, about the age of 12 or 13. And so he did more than some for sure. But most of my friends were the children of, of divorce. And there were, of course, friends that I had. It wasn't entirely a self-selecting group. There were friends that I had who were not the children of divorce, but rather uh, had intact families. But a lot of those families didn't just weren't happy. I mean, you, you kind of tell that. You know, there's a kind of grim, dusty, <laughs> tense kind of unhappiness in the household uh, in in some of these 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 places. And it partly had to do with you know you know when you grow up poor, you don't. You know, there's a lot of broken homes around because broken homes puts you down the staircase into the spiral gutter of, of poverty in so so many situations or so many circumstances. Um, but even the kids, you know, when I went to a boarding school that was pretty hoity-toity, look at me, I sound like a Tennessee Williams character, hoity-toity. <laughs> but when I went to a boarding school uh, and I stayed with some of the friends that I made there, there, a lot of their families were split up and busted up and all that kind of stuff. And so I think... You know, if I sort of think back to where my curiosity about voluntary relationships as adults came from, I think it had something to do with so many examples that were in my environment, that the majority of the kids in my environment came from single uh, households. And, and I do, I mean, there was one, I thought, great family. And I, I, I think still a very good to great family, but one. One that I remember my whole my whole childhood and a really really special group of people, and you know gave me. <laughs> it only takes one to give you that signpost to the future that you can hopefully recreate. But I think I saw so many people who had chosen to be in relationships, choosing to not be in those relationships through divorce, through separation, and friends I had whose parents had been married for twenty years. Uh, uh, would, they, they sometimes split up. I remember one friend of mine, his parents split up when he was 14 or 15. And uh, that was a big problem because I used to go to his place after school to, to play. And there was a lot, of, a lot of heartbreak and a lot of adults 
really not saying that family is everything, but rather that there is a level of conflict at which point families can be broken. There is a level of disagreement. There is a level of aggression. There is a level of alienation. There is a level of disaffection that can cause people who've chosen voluntarily to be in relationships to break up those relationships. And I mean, it's catastrophic for families as we've talked about before. And yeah, sorry, let me, let me just finish up and I'll get, get your feedback. This is just sort of thoughts that I've had and sort of mulling over where some of these ideas may have come from for me. And so, of course, you know, people who've chosen to be in marriages and, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the people that I knew who'd chosen to be in marriages uh, had chosen to not be in those marriages and some significant portion of those had chosen not to be in their children's lives at all. Well, that's, that's kind of instructive. That, that tells me a lot more about people's values than their protestations that family is, is everything. And I thought, well, geez, I, I guess I probably thought at some level, well, if adults who've chosen to be in relationships can choose to not be in those relationships, even with their own kids, then why would this not be something that would be possible for uh, adult uh, children, right? I mean, why is it uh, that uh, the, the majority of parents seem to have this uh, capacity to walk out on things that are unsatisfying or or not enriching or whatever. I mean, what what I don't I don't know why people got divorced in in my neighborhood. What I mean, I was a kid, right? I just knew that they were. And I think there is just that extension of that, you know. And and I think that the extension is in 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 many ways more rational for people who didn't choose uh, who didn't choose to be in those relationships, right? So I mean. Husbands who leave their wives, they're, they're leaving relationships that they voluntarily chose to be in. But of course, the kids didn't choose to be born there. So shouldn't we extend that same courtesy to them? And uh, that, of course, is uh, – I was just sort of thinking about why I didn't fall, in a sense, for this social statement that uh, uh, that family is everything. I think because I really didn't see it demonstrated very much in, in my environment. And uh, – I guess I try to uh, I try to work as empirically as possible and to not believe what people say, but rather look at uh, at what they do. So I just sort of wanted to to mention that I was just sort of mulling that over this week. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And uh, growing up, my now my family um, four boys, it was a mixed bag, but I mean our relatives. So they always came over the holidays. My parents would have us call our relatives, and that's something that I still do. Also, call them on those because I enjoy talking to them. So it's it's not just an, an obligatory thing, but like I'll call my aunt and, and things on, on holidays and things like that, which is something I enjoy talking to them. However, on the other side of the coin, if I look at other illustrations of my family, I've got brothers that uh, you know, I'm both four, and um, I've not had a conversation on the level of the one we're having right now with them and with uh, with them that I can recall in probably a decade. So, and then we, I got an email from, well, actually my wife, uh, who's listening now and, uh, she's terrific and, uh, she's growing along with me and that's, you know, in, in our relationship is progressing. A lot of things I'm learning here are going to be helpful with that, which, uh, is worth, you know, worth everything to me. But, um, getting back to the family thing is, you know, I get, we get an email saying, well, you know, we live in Texas, they live in Ohio, it's considerable distance. It's very difficult for us to get there very often at all. And they said, well, you know, we're going to be, we would like to, their 15th wedding anniversary, have all the boys together, all this type of stuff. It's the best gift that we give them. I said, yada, yada, yada. My parents love that. Um, terrific. Great. But these, the same person that's implying that we should feel obligated to do this or, you know, you know, families, everything is very same person, just like cold and I can't have a, they, you know, they don't respond. Anyway, this, 
you know, they're, they're basically saying, you know, they won't come out and say it, but once my, my parents are gone, they'll, they probably likely have almost zero to do with my wife and I, you know, so family is everything. Yeah. And maybe I've done something. I know I'm certain I've done some things in the past that, you know, that have put up some barriers, but you know, you'll hear the old saying bygones, bygones, family is everything. Blood is thicker than water. It's all, it's all BS. <laughs> and it's clearly illustrated. And that's my thing with the whole defooing thing. Um, if your family, if they really knew you, if they really knew me, you know, and they don't, they know, they know some of what I think. And, you know, I keep on getting rejected because I've always thought it, I've been a voluntarist and a, and a libertarian for some time and, you know, been playing with these ideas for a long time. A lot of presenting new ideas to them, they're different, their way of thinking are part of, are part of that barrier. So in other words, what they're really telling me is we can't stand who you really are, you know, and so I've, I've I know one of your podcasts or somewhere I've read that you said that really your family defoos you. You really don't defoo them. I, I can def- I definitely get that. So um, anyway, I just wanted to, this is this has been this has been refreshing and liberating, and um, I'm enjoying listening. And uh, thank you. I appreciate that, and uh, thanks, of course, for calling in. Great, uh, great comments, and uh, hi to your wife as well. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for another caller. Hi, can you hear me? I sure can. Great. Hey, Steph. Uh, my name is Marco, and I'm from Europe. And I tried to already ask you this question uh, a few weeks ago in the chat room, but you had callers, so you didn't take it. You read it, but you didn't answer it. Um, I was wondering what your opinion was on the theory of the principle, I mean, on the uh, pain and pleasure pl- principle, which basically says that we human beings make every decision either conscious or unconscious um, based on or um, first and foremost to avoid doing something that we learned through our lives will cause us pain and second to do something that we learned through our lives will cause us pleasure. Sorry, could you just, uh, just rephrase that? I want to make sure I understand it. Well, basically, it's a theory, right, of a pain and pleasure principle, which says that um, we people, every decision that we ever make is either made because we, through our lives, have learned that that thing will prevent us from experiencing pain, Mm. or uh, second, will cause us pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's to say that human beings have some motivation for what it is that they do. And uh, I I can certainly accept that that's somewhat helpful. I just I just don't I'm not sure what what is added to any particular understanding by saying that people have uh, motivations for what it is that they're doing. I think that's true of animals, of people, uh, maybe even of uh, of a single-celled organisms. Yeah, sure, but it's not just uh, about the motivation. It's actually the um, core guidance, how we think. Basically, it's a little bit conflicting with your opinion on free will. And I know you hate this uh, topic because you apparently had a lot of conversations about it already. But um, Yeah, so if I understand it rightly, what you're saying is that if we're driven by pain and pleasure. Yes then um, free will becomes much more questionable, right? Yes. 
Well, okay, but let me sort of give you an example, right? So, I don't know, have you ever uh, been a smoker or a drinker? Uh, I I drank. I mean, uh, when I when we partied with my friends, I did did have a few drinks, but I'm not a drinker. Okay. Well, let let's say that that you were a, I don't know. Let's say you were a smoker, right? So, uh, the, the the pleasure and uh, pain principle is that uh, if you're a smoker, particularly if you're a heavy smoker. It is more pleasurable to continue smoking in the moment, and it is more painful to stop smoking, right? Right. But people do stop smoking, right? Yeah. And why do they stop smoking? Because they realize or relearn what will cause them more pain uh, eventually or immediately. I don't think that's true. Because I don't think there's a smoker, at least in the West, I don't think there's a smoker alive who thinks that it's good for you. All right, so simply no, no, knowledge, no, knowledge no. of the long-term negative consequences doesn't explain why people smoke because everybody's aware of the long-term negative consequences, right? No, no, no. They smoke because of the short-term pleasure. No, I understand that. But I, I asked you – I'm not trying to, trying to corner you, but like I asked you why people quit and you said because of, their, of the long-term consequences, negative consequences of smoking. But, but lots of people continue to smoke even though they know the negative long-term consequences, right? Yes, that's because in that moment they make a conscious decision or perhaps it's subconscious to have a smoke because in that moment they feel the pleasure that they'll get in that moment outweighs the pain they'll experience down the road. Hmm. But eventually if that changes, if they think that the pain outweighs the pleasure, the short-term pleasure, they quit smoking. Right. So some people, um, you know, like, so for instance, before the show today, uh, I put my daughter to sleep in one of the ways that, <laughs> that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds so sinister like I'm a vet. I put my daughter down to bed and, and one of the ways that I do that is I lie down with her and sort of we cuddle and chat about her day and then she, she drifts off. And one of the things that happens is that I get kind of nappy too. And... So I was uh, before – I think this was around maybe quarter past one. She she fell asleep. So I put her into her bed and I was kind of uh, – you know, I was like, oh, man, I could really close my eyes for 20 minutes or whatever, right, and just, just have a short nap. And I thought, oh, you know, but I, I didn't exercise yesterday, so I should really do uh, some cardio at least uh, and, uh, and, and exercise, do a bit of stretching so that I'm sort of alert uh, for the show. And, you know, the, I could – you know, it wasn't – it's not a huge life decision or anything like that. But in terms of the pleasure pain, pain uh, the pleasure pain principle, it would have been nicer to have a nap. But um, I I feel better that I I worked out, and so so I'm just I'm not sure in particular what it what it explains to say that because you you can't really predict. It really has to do with what I'm going to focus on uh, and what decision I'm going to make. So I, I agree with you that people have motivations for what they're doing. But um, whether people focus on the short-term gain, which for me would have been a nap in the moment, or the long-term gain, which was, you know, be more alert for the show, plus uh, to, um, uh, to, to have exercise and to feel, feel sort of better about that. So if, if the pleasure brain principle can justify both decisions to have a nap or to work out, I'm just not sure – what it explains except after the fact, right? So after I work out and, and instead of napping, people can say, well, so he took more pleasure out of working out.
that he took out of napping. But if I had chosen to nap rather than to work out, then people would say, well, his behavior is explained by the fact that he, he took more pleasure out of napping than out of working out. So I'm just not sure what it does other than provide an ex post facto, quote, explanation for something without any predictive power, if that makes any sense. Uh, sure, but I can explain why uh, we sometimes focus on the long-term uh, things and sometimes short-term. Um, and it has to do with our ability um, to, to sense the world around us because our senses do not allow us to fully um, uh, recognize, let's say, the reality around us, but we have filters. For instance, I can give you uh, a quick, uh, quick example. If you do uh, this this demonstration with me, um, look around your room, the, the one you're in right now. And oh, oh, by the way, you aren't in that red room that you record your videos normally. You say I'm not, or uh, you're asking I'm me if asking I am. If you are, yeah, I'm I am. If you are. I am. Um, okay, maybe this example won't really work. Uh, I was going to ask you if, if you could look around the room and spot anything you could that was, let's say, uh, brown. All right, I could do that. Okay, have you done it? I have. Now please close your eyes and tell me um, from your memory what in your room is the color beige or silver, let's say. Uh, silver, uh, well, I have um, a computer, uh, a DVD, a silver pen, a paperclip, uh, a pin. Uh, I don't think. Oh, um, uh, you know, one of those, um, it's got, it's like a black, big black paperclip with those little sort of hoopy uh, silver things. That's silver. Um, the base of my light bulbs, I assume, is silver. I haven't changed them in a while, but... That's silver. Um, the light that I use when I'm being interviewed at night, my landing lights okay, okay, okay. of Gestapo interrogation, <laughs> those are silver. <laughs> That's enough. Okay. It, it wasn't how, it wasn't, uh, I guess I didn't ask my question correctly because um, I, I wanted to ask, actually ask you what you saw that was silver, uh, of the color silver, but uh, you went from memory. I, I phrased the question wrong, so the example didn't really work out uh, to make my. Okay, let's say it did work out. What would uh, what would that establish? Well, well, it would establish that our senses are unable to, uh, at any moment, um, um, sense everything around us. That we're only able to focus on certain things, and sometimes uh, we, we switch that focus. We either focus on, I don't know, for example, uh, if you're in a bad mood, you can consciously make the decision to focus on everything that, that gives you joy in your life or uh, um, that, that, uh, gives, uh, that makes you feel proud and you can instantly change the way you feel about. Or instead, if, if you feel bad and you focus on all the things that are bad, you feel even worse and you, you can experience depression. So that kind of explains why sometimes uh, we make the, the short term, the, the, we focus on the short term and what, it, what um, the plain, pain pleasure principle 
uh, tells us uh, for the short term or sometimes for the long term. Right. And I, I would agree with all of that. But you still don't think that it's the the um, the core uh, guidance for all our decisions that 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 is only a motivation for the decisions. Yeah, I, I look. I'm. I accepted you. I accepted you. Sorry, I accept the proposition that people have motives for what they do. I just I can't figure out what it adds to say that. Uh, anyway, listen. I, I I think we've we've talked about this as least. I think we've talked about it as much as we can. Uh, let yeah, me sure. um, just, just go to to the next. If I can, uh, it's a quick one. Uh, I was wondering. I heard that you already heard about bitcoins, but I was wondering if you could really sh uh, in uh, quickly mention. Uh, I mean, tell me if, uh, what your opinion about it is. I, I don't know enough about it to have uh, to have an opinion. I'm afraid I, I have looked into it, but uh, I haven't looked into it enough to to come to any particular conclusion. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate your comments, and thank you for coming back. Bye. All right. I think we have time for one more shorty short one. I'm going to try and keep the show roughly on uh, on schedule today. Can you hear me now, Steph? I can. Yes. Listen, yeah. I didn't talk to you about my Verizon contract. All right. So, um... Uh, my first question was that um, I'm making some videos soon. On, I plan to use uh, YouTube and Facebook, and I was curious if you had any ideas for what sort of uh, editing programs I should use and if you had any advice on uh, pacing of the videos. And then my second question was um, your thoughts on ways to make self-knowledge and anarchy more marketable, uh, similar to how, um, if you are familiar with this, like, the idea of memes and what makes memes stick and spread and like, you know, on the internet and I hate to mention it, but places like 4chan and stuff like that. And right, uh, right. that's, that was pretty much my question. See what uh, you and anyone else's thoughts were on that. Well, um, I mean, technically I, um, I've used a variety of programs right now. I'm on um, power director uh, nine, which I think is a very good, a good program. Uh, in particular because it uses a lot of hardware acceleration, which I think is very valuable. And it uh, also uploads to YouTube, except it uh, doesn't upload videos longer than 15 minutes, which is kind of a drag. But, you know, not the end of the world. There's no program I know that does that. But so I think that's a, that's a good one for editing. Uh, it can be a little bit unstable. And the 64-bit version is, is well worth it uh, because of the um, uh, very efficient use of memory and, of course, lots of multitasking, multiprocessing kind of stuff. So I think that's good. A pacing is interesting. Um, you know, my, my sort of biggest, I was just talking about this the other day with someone, that my, my sort of biggest videos are like 350,000 views, which is like, ah, I don't know, 50 to 100 times what my average sort of true news video is. So I've been sort of meaning to get back into producing more of those. I think that uh, when you're introducing new ideas, sort of slower and calmer and more patient is is important. I try and stay away from some of that ominous dum 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 music that is sometimes used in this kind of stuff. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's sort of important to to stay away from. And uh, uh, so I, I think that trying to go sort of slower and more patiently is uh, and and more calmly, I think, is a good way to get new ideas across. I think passion is helpful and important once you're speaking to people who already sort of get the basics. But it can be just a bit alarming to people who don't. <laughs> You know, sort of think about it. like if, uh, you know, if, if you're some guy 
uh, railing for social change and there's 10,000 people with you, then you're a movement. And if you're one guy, then you're like a crazy street preacher and no one's going to take you seriously. So I think it's important to sort of know where you are in the general arc of social growth and social progress. I think that's, um, uh, I think that's, that's important. And I think it's pretty early on in terms of voluntarism. I mean, it's not as bad as it was obviously a generation or two ago. But if you think of someone like, I was thinking about Lysander Spooner, the Constitution of No Authority. I mean, this guy wrote about the invalidity of the Constitution, the American Constitution, what, 150 years ago or something like that. And his ideas have not penetrated anywhere close to anywhere within, you know, missiles distance of the mainstream. And uh, I think that is something that is uh, important to understand and to and to accept. Uh, he made you know great arguments, and you actually get this. I think it's markstevens.net, M-A-R-C Stevens.net, where he's got I think a free audiobook reading of it, which is well worth listening to. And so I think that recognizing that we are water wearing away stone at the moment, and it's it's still very early uh, in any kind of uh, progress towards a truly free and rational society. Uh, I think it's re- to recognize that uh, effects are going to be limited, that penetration is going to be very slow, that you're going to receive a lot more resistance than acceptance. Uh, and uh, I think that accrues more honor to those who are pushing forward. But that would be my suggestion. I think a lot of people go in thinking that there's some magic argument, some magic uh, video, some magic uh, want that is going to part the red seas of indifference and superstition and irrationality and we're going to be able to stride forward to the future and there's going to be some big groundswell and so on. I don't think that is the case and I think there's lots of reasons why, which you know doesn't really matter, but I think to recognize that that slow and steady is the way that, that things work. Uh, slow and steady, uh, you know, patience and in a sense resigning yourself to a dogged slogging in the trenches for the sake of a future world that is free, uh, just as people before us slogged uh, in solitude, often in the trenches, to give us some semblances of freedom. But I think that um, uh, don't go in with too much enthusiasm, which then causes you to despair. That would sort of be my suggestion. Uh, 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 aim low and you, <laughs> you won't be disappointed. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being pleasantly surprised. But uh, that would be my suggestion. I mean, just to give you one one other brief example, right? So it's like it's been over three hundred years. Is it? No, it's been over two hundred and fifty years since some of the basic arguments have been put forward by Smith and Ricardo and other economists, uh, and uh, even arguments like free trade is beneficial to most parties, uh, or um, uh, if the uh, if the supply of money increases relative to the value of goods and services, you get inflation. Or if the two people who engage in free trade are both doing so with the anticipation of gaining more than they lose. Or if coercion is used in any voluntary interaction, it is always at the expense of someone and to the gain of somebody else. Uh, These are sort of basic axioms, I guess what Mises would call praxeological axioms of uh, of economics, and they've been talked about for many years, and they've been pretty rigorously put forward for at least a hundred, and talked about for hundreds of years before that. And if you go to a hundred people in the world, you would be very lucky to find one who would even understand or accept one of those. And this has been hundreds of years. 
So uh, I think that it's important to uh, to pace yourself and to to base your expectations on the history of the progress of uh, of human thought, and that you had uh, very powerful arguments against the existence of gods floating around the pre-Socratics over 2,500 years ago, and still we have gods. So I think that to recognize that the change in progress in human society is very low, which is why I've always talked about it as a multi-generational project. And I say that so that we we don't feel despair and uh, and lose our way and feel more frustration than is empirically necessary, so to speak, if that makes any sense. Oh dear, did I put him to sleep? No, yeah, it, it sounds good, man. And um, what did you think about, like, uh, I guess he kind of did answer the market marketability thing too with that when you talk about um, looking at the history of it. But uh, how, do you have any ideas about how to, I guess, memeify some of this stuff and make it more transmutable? Uh, boy, if I did, I think I'd share it with you. No, I, <laughs> I certainly would, but uh, I don't. I think that... Um, uh, I think that the, the, the only really important thing is the quality of the content, is the quality of the content. Uh, I think that's really all that matters. And it doesn't matter the form as much. I mean, the form is not unimportant for sure. I'm not going to sort of pretend that, that it's completely unimportant. But uh, the first thing to aim for is the quality of the content. And then you can polish it up as you like. But it doesn't matter what's on the album cover. What matters what's what's in the album, and so that would be my uh, <laughs> that would be my my suggestion. Just keep focusing on as much quality as possible, and try and share it as as much as possible. All right, uh, thank you, Steph. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, uh, James. Do we have anyone who was uh, dying, yearning, burning, uh, who's been hanging on for way too long? Or we did have a couple of uh, questions. Um... But if you wanted to just end up the show, we can do that too. Were they tough questions? Uh, they might more be questions that are... There's one UPP question. Um, and one that may require a little more information. Let's do the UPP one because UPP is my crack. And I can never okay. say no to that slinky witch. All righty. Uh, the question is, is it a violation of UPB for not keeping an implicit contract? And the example he gives is not helping your family financially when, quote, assigned the responsibility. Well, that's interesting. So what you're saying is uh, if you have kids uh, and you, uh, you – let's say just take a cliche. So if you have kids and you're the dad and you take off and you don't pay, is that a violation of UPB? Yeah, I think that would be the question. Let's see if we can get the guy in the chat to verify. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a that's a great question, and I think that it's not something I want to try and answer off the top of my head because my head is a whirl with possible ways of looking at it. So I, I think that's a great question. Let me mull it over, and maybe I can article it at uh, some point this week because I think that's that's a, it's a really, really great question. And uh, uh, thank you so much. And, he, and he, I think he's out of the chat now. So. He's out of the chat. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks. I guess this is one of the biggest chat uh, room we've ever had. And uh, also, if you want to go to patriotpolls.com, uh, on Thursday evening, uh, I think they had the biggest turnout they've had for uh, a type 
chat set of questionnaires that I did with them, and you can find it at patriotpulse.com. They were totally slumming it. Uh, They've had people in there before. Uh, They've done Cindy Sheehan, Tom Woods, Jack Hunter, John Dennis. And then they were like, okay, well, let's uh, let's stop with all that quality and go with the Steph bot. So that's uh, that was a lot of fun. And um, I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to uh, just sort of share that with people. So it's worth going in to check it out. And you can also, if you want, vote for a free domain radio uh, in terms of uh, preferred website. So uh, thanks, everybody, so much. Have yourselves an absolutely wonderful week. And uh, I will talk to you soon.